Hello, and welcome to the conversation at airsafe.com, the official podcast of the airsafe.com foundation. I'm your host, Dr. Todd Curtis, the director of the foundation and the creator of airsafe.com, your reliable source of airline safety and security information since 1996. In this conversation, I'd like to talk about a report from the U.S. Government Accountability Office released on the 15th of November, 2007, titled Aviation Security, Vulnerabilities Exposed Through Covert Testing of TSA's Passenger Screening Process. In short, there is a test of the security system of the TSA where the GAO went out and found information, publicly available information, on how to create liquid-based explosive devices and they were able to successfully get these devices through security at several U.S. airports. Some of the items in the baggage included items that are currently banned by the TSA. Part of the controversy, of course, is that after spending billions of dollars and training thousands of people for security purposes, that this sort of thing is still able to go on. That question was explored in some detail on the mid-morning show on Minnesota Public Radio on the 16th of November, 2007. The host for the show was Carrie Miller, the guests for the show included myself and Randolph Hall of the University of Southern California's Center for Risk and Economic Analysis of Terrorism Events. What follows is an excerpt from that broadcast. This is Midmorning on Minnesota Public Radio. I'm Carrie Miller. This hour, why airplanes and their passengers remain vulnerable. When undercover investigators showed up at airport security checkpoints earlier this year, they were able to smuggle detonators, liquid explosives, and other banned material right past the security agents and the high-tech screening equipment. They were working for the Government Accountability Office, and what they found ended up in a bluntly written report that says the Transportation Safety Administration is not doing enough to enforce security. At a congressional hearing yesterday, Committee Chairman Henry Waxman of California said he found the results mind-boggling and pronounced them unacceptable. But an assistant administrator from TSA said the GAO investigation is not the whole story. She told the committee, there's nothing in this report that's news to us that we were not working on or don't already know. So what's the real story? How porous is this country's airport security? And why is it that after six years, billions of dollars in the hiring of hundreds of new security personnel, that banned substances and devices are still getting through? What kinds of new technology is the TSA bringing on board to tighten security. We've asked two guests to be with us today to answer some of those questions. Randolph Hall is the vice provost for research advancement at the University of Southern California, also a founder of the USC Center for Risk and Economic Analysis of Terrorism Events, and that's known as CREATE, and he's with us this morning from L.A. Mr. Hall, good to have you with us for the conversation. Good morning. Great to be here. Uh, Todd Curtis is with us as well. He's a former United States Air Force flight test engineer and a Boeing airline safety engineer, a member of the International Society of Air Safety Investigators, and he is with us this morning from Seattle. Mr. Curtis, glad you could join us as well. Well, thank you for having me. Mr. Holder, you first, the chair of the House Oversight Committee, as you heard, is is calling these security breaches mind-boggling. The TSA though, is saying this is not news. <laughs> Where's the truth lie between those two things? Well, when we look at terrorism and aircraft, we've paid very close attention because um, we know that's where terrorists have struck in the past. We also have to recognize that aircraft alone are not the only place that terrorists could strike, and we have to be very careful not to focus in on just this one 
point of attack. And, and Mr. Curtis, I understand that, but I, I, the question has got to be asked that there's been a lot of money invested in this, there have been a lot of personnel that have been trained, and there's been a lot of focus on these airport security issues. It, it does not appear that they're solved in any, in any stretch of the imagination here. Well, here's the, the basic situation. Uh, as difficult as it may be to carry something through security, the imagination of the potential uh, um, bad guys out there is such where it's just a matter of looking for the weaknesses in the system. Uh-huh. And simply put, uh, liquids are one of the kinds of things, especially explosive liquids, that are very difficult to detect with the standard procedures that are in place right now. And so you're saying that it, no matter what TSA does, it's always going to be tough to be ahead of whatever uh, whatever ideas the terrorists would have out there. Well, that's correct, because uh, the technology that is out there, either in development or in the field, is widely known to those who uh, want to look out for that sort of thing. So if you know a particular technology is in development or is being deployed in some airports, it's just a question of using something to counter that technology or avoiding those airports. Mr. Hall, I wonder about the consistency of this, though. When I read the, the GAO report, there's an incident that happened on March 23rd. You may have heard about this as well, where the investigator tries to bring through a small bottle of medicated shampoo. The screener says, no, you can't take that through because it might have acid in it and completely misses a liquid that can be used to make explosive devices. Right. So, what's what's with the consistency here or lack lack of it? Well, I think the challenge for the screener, so this is the person who is interacting with the passengers going to the aircraft, right. is that the occurrence of true bomb materials is so rare that it's very hard for them to separate out what is a true threat versus something that's just normal. When it's so rare, it's difficult to get the training up to a level to really separate the true threat from something that's just incidental. So, Mr. Curtis, what's the answer here? The answer is that we can't put our trust in any one layer of security. It's going to be several layers, not all of them technological. Uh, For example, there is uh, all sorts of uh, profiling going on now, Mm -hmm. not necessarily of the individuals, but of their behaviors. Uh, For example, if someone buys a ticket at the counter with cash, an hour before the plane takes off, that usually will raise a red flag or two. And there may be other behavioral clues that one would hope TSA is aware of and is looking out for. I have. We've actually done a, a program on this face recognition uh, psychology, I think, these techniques that they're using, right? They're looking, as you said, for somebody buying cash. They're looking for somebody whose face may be giving away anxiety, those kinds of things. I mean, how much confidence do you put in that? Well, the individual technologies, I'm highly confident that there will be some level of effectiveness of any technology. A bigger question is, if you have a technology, whatever it may be, Mm -hmm. it has to be instituted across the country for every size airport for it to be effective at stopping everyone. And and why? Uh, For the simple reason that the system is interdependent on uh, all the airports operating together. For example, if I'm taking off from a small airport like Pensacola Mm -hmm. and I'm changing planes in Atlanta, well, suddenly I have access to essentially... Uh, any airport in the country simply by going from one small airport to a bigger airport and changing planes. So, Mr. Hall, when when this TSA administrator, I think uh, her name was Ellen Howe, says to Congress when they see the results of this GAO report, look, uh, this doesn't tell the whole story. Um, Just because somebody gets through one layer doesn't mean they're going to get through all of the layers. Would you say that's that's true? That's part of it, but 
So going back to your earlier point, could we be doing more? I, I think what this report shows as the vulnerability is the more that we have announced standards and a predictable system of checking, the easier it will be to defeat such a system. Mm -hmm. And that points to having randomized approaches where the security is not always the same and um, where it can't be predicted so easily by terrorists and therefore uh, defeated as easily. Mr. Uh, Curtis, is, is that do you think that's really the answer here that in some ways, if you're viewing the measures that we have in place for airport security, they are somewhat predictable and you can pretty much get the lay of the land if you observe it long enough. Do you, do you think this unpredictability is really the key? It's not the, the key, but it's certainly a component that you would have to have in any security system, no matter what it may be. And I also hasten to point out that uh, the emphasis in the GAO report is with the screening of passengers. Uh, what I didn't see mentioned there, but what I've seen mentioned elsewhere, is the fact that you have more than just passengers in the terminal. Mm -hmm. For example, you have all the staff, be they security, airport, concessionaires, etc., who are in the secure area of the airport. And it doesn't take a lot of imagination to think of a situation where material could be stockpiled within the airport over a period of months, weeks, or even years. And then at some appointed time, someone goes into the secure area, assembles whatever device, and takes it on board an airplane. After all, there is relatively little security once you get past the TSA screening before you get on that airplane. I was going to ask you, are there any measures that are in place that would stop somebody from doing that right now? Well, as we've seen, as an example, with the war on drugs over the last three or so decades, if you have an incentive, usually money, there's always going to be someone who is willing to look the other way and allow packages to go through the secure area onto an airport and onto an air aircraft. So there's always going to be the human element. We are dealing with human beings who are part of the air transportation system and the security system, and they too have weaknesses. If you're listening in this morning on Mid-Morning, our guest this morning, Randolph Hall, Vice Provost for Research Advancement at the University of Southern California, also the founder of the USC Center for Risk and Economic Analysis of Terrorism Events. It's known as CREATE. Todd Curtis with us as well. He's a former United States Air Force flight test engineer and Boeing airline safety engineer and a member of the International Safety of Air Safety Investigators with us this morning from Seattle. If you'd like to join the conversation, we're talking today about this GAO report that was presented before a House committee earlier this week, in which they revealed that investigators had spread out to, I think it was 19 different airports throughout the system. And what happened when they tried to smuggle bomb components and other contraband through the airport security checkpoints? What they found is that a number of those checkpoints were rather porous. And we've asked our two guests what the implications of this are. Why is it that after all these years of financial investment and personnel hiring and lots of training, that there are still seem to be problems. Ken in Minneapolis. Hi, Ken. Your, your uh, comment or question, please. Hi, Carrie. This is Ken from Metro State. Yeah, hi, Ken. Years ago, I was on my way to Belgrade and had to change planes in Germany. And the German machine caught a small nail clippers that the American screening machine had not. I asked the German inspector how this is possible. His response was simple. He said the American machines are, are cheaper. They are not as good. He said in Europe they spend more money and they catch everything. And Todd Curtis, is that right? Well, every country has different levels of security and different levels of emphasis. And even within the United States, 
there's some leeway as far as the sensitivity of, for example, metal screening machines, uh, the, the uh, metal detectors, and also uh, changes you can make in how strictly you will hand search people if there's a suspicious activity going on. So the level of security changes all the time, and it's difficult to say that one country is always going to be better or safer than another. Is that enough, that it's safe enough, but it isn't perfect, and that's probably what we have to live with? Well, saying that the system is safe enough is a matter of opinion because, uh, again, if, for example, if we had the same accident rate in the 1970s today, we would have several large airliners going down every year, and it would be, it would be an unacceptable level of safety. Yet the probability was much higher back in the 70s. It was considered to be acceptable. Mm. Now, looking at the terrorism aspect mm-hmm. of it, so long as there are no events, it's safe enough in the minds of most people. But the history has shown that there is always going to be something out of left field, someone creative as well as diabolical, who might do something that no one ever expected. Uh, for example, a few years ago there was a FedEx pilot who decided to attack the rest of his flight crew using hammers and spear guns. And they were very close to losing a DC-10 on that event. And that was a total inside job. Uh, someone within the airline decided to do an evil act, and there was no security in place to keep that from happening. Wow. Let me go back to the phones here to Dave in Apple Valley. Hi, Dave. Hi, how's it going? Good, your question. Yeah, I work in security in the financial industry, and I, I recognize that it's a, it's a different environment and it's a different industry, but one of the things that really concerns me at, when I travel is the number of false positives you witness in these systems. Mr. Curtis, give us some uh, enlightenment on that, will you? Well, when you have false positives, obviously, uh, someone thinks that someone's carrying something on board when they aren't. So long as there's not going to be too many personal losses, for example, people missing aircraft flights and as a result buying more tickets, or for that matter, airlines not being able to take off at all because of security concerns. So long as there's not an immediate financial impact, there's not going to be much call for making changes. Uh, Getting back to the uh, machines to sniff luggage for for bomb-making materials, those are not cheap. These fancier x-ray machines might cost hundreds of thousands of dollars, hundreds of thousands of dollars per machine. So long as that does not result in huge increases in taxes or ticket prices, it will be an acceptable solution. Mm-hmm. But there has to be a balance. You have obviously a need to put money and other resources towards solving the problem. But at the same time, you have to look at the cost effectiveness of any idea that you're putting out there. Mr. Hall, do you think, because I know you look at a lot of this technology, this security technology, do you think the future uh, is really lies in more of what we talked about a moment ago, the, the facial recognition, those kinds of, the unpredictability factor, than it does in buying ever more expensive equipment and installing it in airports around the country? Yeah, I have to say that the ever more expensive equipment is probably not the solution, and the solution really focuses more on the people, the people being the terrorists who could execute attacks. And I I personally put much more weight on the intelligence side, the investigative side, uh, what the police forces might do to stop a terrorist um, attack prior to the person getting to the airport. I feel like if we have a terrorist at the airport ready to go through the screening, then we've already failed to a great degree hmm. because we haven't intervened at the right point. All right. Let me go back to the phones here to Fred in White Bear Lake. Hi, your question. Yeah, hi, good morning. I know your program's about security inside an airport, but 
I'm wondering what your experts think about the risk to uh, the American airline industry of, of possible attacks from uh, around the airports with uh, ground-to-air fired shoulder missiles. It seems to me that if you were to knock down a half a dozen planes around the country, you'd literally bring the airline industry to a standstill. Huh. Okay. Mr. Hall, were you talking about that earlier? Yes, and we've done some studies on that at USC. Uh, there are different types of weapons that could conceivably be used. Uh, one is a manned portable air defense system. They can fire at aircraft from a great distance at the airports. Other types of weapons that could conceivably be used, um, rocket-propelled grenades, uh, high-powered rifles, all of them are extremely hard to defend against. So so I think, uh, Randolph Hall, I, I think I hear you saying if you were someone that wanted to try to bring down a plane, you know, standing on the ground somewhere around the airport, uh, there are a lot of weapons that you could use to do that, and it would be difficult to detect that. It would absolutely be difficult to detect, and there are weapons out there, and which is the reason why Congress has been taking a very close look at this threat. We're going to take a break for news, and we're going to say thanks very much to Randolph Hall. Thank you, sir, for joining us. We appreciate it. Thank Rand- you very much. Todd Curtis continues with us after news, a former United States Air Force flight test engineer and Boeing Airline safety engineer. He's also a member of the International Society of Air Safety Investigators. Back to our conversation this morning with Todd Curtis as we talk about airport security. Mr. Curtis, the thing that always occurs to me as I'm flying is that I feel like we're always fighting the last security battle, that we're kind of behind the curve. Is that a fair assessment, or is that just, it's just naturally the way it is? I think it's more than naturally, it's more of a natural occurrence, because when it comes to someone doing something unconventional to aircraft, mm-hmm. for example, trying to shoot one down, for one thing, there isn't exactly a formal education process where everyone gets the same training and you can reasonably expect that they may come at you with the same kind of techniques. Each time it happens, it's almost as though we're learning something brand new again. And even for some of the threats, such as were mentioned in the last segment about surface-to-air missiles, every time it happens, there's something new to learn. Mm-hmm. For example, the most recent one, one of the recent ones against a civilian airliner, it's suspected that the missiles did not even have the capability to seek and destroy the aircraft, that these may have been just uh, training missiles shot in the general direction. But it had the same effect. That is, it put fear into the hearts of travelers around the world. So we're focusing on someone trying to do something and taking down an airliner. That may not be the target. Even with the liquid bomb event from a year or two ago, They did not successfully bring the bombs on board, Mm. yet it led to, overnight, a change worldwide in how procedures were being done for passengers. You're talking about what happened in Great Britain, right? That's correct. Mm -hmm. At the time, I was in Thailand traveling, and as soon as the news hit the wires, we were, I think, flying the next day on a domestic uh, flight. The rules were in place, extremely strict. Nothing liquid was being let on the airplane. So anywhere in the world something happens, it could lead to a very immediate effect on how people travel. But I I think about the shoe bomber, because that's a great example. As soon as that case broke, then everybody who was going through security checkpoints had to take off their shoes. And I always feel like there's so much focus on what was and not, at least I can't see it, on, on focus on what may be this imagination that you say that these people who who might want to do, you know, some kind of damage to the airlines, what they're thinking about. 
and human imagination is such where it's not just the people who have advanced educations or advanced training. Um, anyone who's seen a documentary about U.S. prisons probably has seen multiple times how prisoners with very few resources somehow craft together dangerous and even deadly weapons from common objects that are around the prison cell. Mm-hmm. And if you have that kind of imagination within a very tightly controlled prison creating weapons, someone who's on the outside who has access to hardware stores and what have you and time and information from the Internet or from the library can craft together all kinds of creative things. Let me take a call here from Paul in Princeton. Hi, Paul. Yeah, hi. Uh, two quick questions. One was, uh, are we still screening little old ladies, or have we gotten more uh, smart about profiling and so we don't waste our time with that? And then the second one it really bugged me. It's a follow-up almost to what you were just talking about. When that whole liquids thing came up, it, it happened all of a sudden, and it was a big panic, that, and they, they, they uh, with very little warning, made all kinds of rule changes that messed everybody up at the airport about what liquids you can carry on. Right. And then they said, oh, yeah, then they said, oh, yeah, we, we already knew about that possibility. Well, why did they wait until a crisis before they instituted that? Because it turned into a mess, and uh, I would appreciate uh, an answer on that. Thanks. Okay, thanks. Well, let me address uh, the second part first, because uh, going away from the security aspect of it, this is the kind of thing that happened throughout my engineering career, especially when I was at Boeing, in that there are threats to aircraft, system failures, human failures, etc. Dozens, if not hundreds, of scenarios that can be thought of. But when it came to deciding which one to be actually approach, we had to go through a very disciplined process of understanding the risk, that is, assessing the risk, and then looking at the various management options. And the bottom line from the engineering side was that if we knew something could take out aircraft or take out people, we didn't say, well, it's going to cost so many millions of dollars, therefore, beyond a certain cutoff, we're not going to do it. No, we would look at it and say, look, we have a 100 different things that can kill people. What's the most cost-effective thing we can do? as far as dollars spent versus lives saved. And we go after the most cost-effective things first, unless something else comes up and suddenly a lower-level risk becomes a high-level risk. And for that example, it's just uh, easy enough to look at the TWA Flight 800 event. Uh, There had been many times in the past where fuel tanks had exploded in airliners, Uh, but that was a very dramatic event. Huge amount of of press coverage, huge amount of political... um, will being exerted on that to solve that particular problem. And indeed, design and operational changes were made in airliners in the United States and elsewhere to keep that problem from happening. But frankly, had that been in a developing airline uh, aircraft on the other side of the world with no uh, Americans involved, it wouldn't have happened. Paul's also asking about profiling, Todd. Well, on the profiling question, again, uh, on the little old lady question, uh, I mentioned Pensacola earlier. Yeah. Uh, that's because uh, about three months after 9-11, I was actually flying through Pensacola to give a talk to the Naval Flight School there. And on the way back, there were maybe half a dozen of us waiting for the morning flight out, and there are seven or eight TSA people. And I sat back and I thought, there's just us and all these people here standing around not doing anything, I'm sure they're going to give us all the third degree, little old ladies included, which there were a couple there. And it wasn't a question of they were profiling us. It was a question of the human nature thing. They're there to do a job. We're the only subjects there to, for them to do their job, and they need to practice a little bit, so they practiced on us. So it's not a question of profiling. It's a question of opportunity. It's a question of how busy they are. It's a question of, well, maybe they just have to randomly pick someone now and again just to make it look honest for the outside person. 
So yes, little old ladies will still be searched, even though on the surface it looks like they have no risk whatsoever. Have you flown through Amsterdam uh, since 9-11? Uh, no, I have not. I, I actually think they were doing this before 9-11. They, they have an interesting one-on-one, pretty intense uh, discussion with passengers who are flying through that airport. And, you know, it, it's a combination. It's like an interview. It's a combination of uh, your standard questions that you'd expect about traveling and then pretty random questions thrown in. And I, I guess I'm curious about how effective that is and whether those kinds of techniques are coming here. Well, that's a very labor-intensive technique. Right, right. And it may be very effective for finding someone who's just acting out of the ordinary, who's uh, particularly nervous, who doesn't want to answer some questions or is unable to answer questions they should be able to answer. But we have situations in this country and elsewhere that may make that sort of thing very difficult to implement. Uh, for example, and um, you might remember a few months ago there was a case of a of a child, like a 10-year-old, sneaking on board an aircraft in Seattle and flying down to San Antonio mm-hmm. without having a, a pass or anything. Well, I looked at that situation a little bit, and it struck me that if you're under the age of 18 and you're flying as an unaccompanied child, there's no requirement for a domestic flight that you even have a photo ID. Hmm. So realistically, you could have a situation where a child, perfectly within the rules, is getting on board an aircraft without any kind of ID. So if you have someone asking the person, what's your name? Well, there's no independent confirmation on that on that person. You can give whatever name you want. I'm curious about what you think about the idea of pilots being armed. Well, in theory, it uh, it's not a bad idea in the sense of if you have someone who is properly trained, who knows uh, what to do inside of an aircraft in a, in a situation that might have hostages and whatnot, uh, theoretically, it's a great idea. But the practical result is that it's very difficult to have someone who is properly trained to handle a gun who may only handle that gun once in their career, if at all, Mm -hmm. and to have a program in place where not just 10 or 15 pilots, but thousands of pilots are constantly being uh, trained, evaluated, tested, etc. And uh, again, the practical reality is that you're not going to have an airline going out of its way saying, "Hmm, great idea, we'd love to spend millions of dollars of our own money to do this. You know, our, our shareholders really aren't into that, so federal government, can you give us hundreds of millions of dollars industry-wide to train these people at a particular level? Well, we've seen the amount of enthusiasm that, that, that that's uh, generated. I don't think it's going to happen. One last question here from Bruce, which is kind of a good way to wrap up our conversation. He writes, what's the greater probability, a plane terrorist act or a plane crash? Well, that that's uh, fairly easy. Plane crashes are much more likely, and they happen on a regular basis every year. Uh, on the, my website, airsafe.com, one of the things I do is I track all of those events involving large airliners where at least one passenger was killed. Mm-hmm. And year after year, uh, might have 10 or 12 events on average. Very rarely are those events due to a deliberate human action, terrorist, sabotage, suicide, what have you. The accidents that happen, they're far more likely right now than any kind of terrorist act. It's a good way to put it in perspective as we close the conversation. Uh, Todd Curtis, thanks very much for being with us. Well, I enjoyed being here. I do hope that you enjoyed that broadcast, and I'm sure that this is a subject which will come up again in the future because the nature of terrorism, the nature of deliberate acts against airlines, will always evolve, as will the security procedures to prevent that. 
Before we end this conversation, I'd like to remind all my listeners that this podcast is sponsored by the Airsafe.com Foundation. This nonprofit organization is responsible for this podcast and for a variety of other efforts to further the public's understanding of aviation safety and aviation security. For information about the Foundation, or to make a tax-deductible donation, please visit the Foundation at airsafe.org. For more information about airline safety, you can find us at airsafe.com. That's A-I-R-S-A-F-E dot com. Or type the words airline safety into your favorite search engine. We're probably on the first page of results. Feel free to write to me at my email address, tcurtis at airsafe.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.